0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. It's page 962 in the Red Bible. Uh, The letter of 1 Corinthians has been such a timely study for us as a church. Uh, We started it back in January, and to be honest with you, the original reason that I chose 1 Corinthians is to address uh, what's going on in our country right now in terms of kind of a sexual revolution. And 1 Corinthians did that. But 1 Corinthians did so much more than that. Because back in January, uh, we could have had no way of anticipating what would happen this year. Uh, We could have no way of anticipating the coronavirus that has popped up. And what we had saw, if you remember at first, was there was a lot of cases in Italy, a lot of people dying, in New York City as well. And so people were afraid. They were afraid of dying. And yet in 1 Corinthians, God's so timely, he reminded us in 1 Corinthians 15 that for those who trust in Christ, our resurrection is certain. And it's going to be wonderful. And so we need not fear death because Christ has risen from the dead. And so it has addressed that, which obviously we did not see coming. Not only that, but as people started to have discussions about mass and social distancing and the danger of coronavirus and opinions started to be formed and strong opinions started to be formed, 1 Corinthians reminded us on multiple occasions to put aside our preferences in order to love our brother and sister in Christ. As we started to return to the church, and as we struggle and wrestle together to get reconnected and reinvolved, First 1 Corinthians, again, in multiple messages, reminded us that God has given each and every one of us a spiritual gift for serving the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ, the church. As many of us linger in isolation, as I talked about, as we linger there to really our own peril, 1 Corinthians pressed us to connect to community as paul as paul needed community so do we need community as well now coronavirus was not the only big thing that happened this year uh, in our community but also the boiling up of racial tensions and again first corinthians was so timely in addressing these, how we should respond in this time. 1 Corinthians 13 reminded us that we are to love one another, that we are to be patient, that we are to be kind, that we're not to be self seeking, that we're not to be easily angered or rude or insist on our own way. And so 1 Corinthians has really exceeded my expectations because not only has it addressed the things that I was hoping it would address, But it even addressed all of the issues that we had no way of knowing were coming this year. And so I'm just so thankful that God has given us this book for our good during this time. And so it's mixed emotions to say goodbye to 1 Corinthians today. But also looking forward to diving into Esther, which I think is also extremely applicable for our time and the chaos of what's going on. And so today we're going to be looking at Paul's final words to the Corinthians And uh, I would probably argue to you that as a preacher, I may appreciate Paul's final words more than the general public. And the reason is, is because in seminary, in preaching class, we were taught that the last words are really the words that are going to stick with people. That's where you want to give your final exhortations, your final encouragement, your final reminders is in the conclusion. But I'd also say the reason why um, I, I really appreciate the last words, uh, which we can so quickly gloss over, is, is because, well I'll put it this way. So when I listen to sermons by other preachers, which I do quite a bit, um, I think there's a temptation when they end the sermon to shut it off and skip that final prayer. Um, but I actually listen more closely to the final prayer because I know as a preacher, sometimes what happens is something important that you forgot to mention in the message occurs to you between when the message ends and when the prayer begins. And so you work in something really important, but you're also communicating the heart of the message and the hope of the message as well. And so final words are so important. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the previous, is definitely the pinnacle of the book, the resurrection of Christ. But Paul's last words here are so valuable to us as a church for this reason, is that they teach us, How to not only survive as a church, but to thrive as a church. And as Christians, individually, I think right now, uh, with all of the chaos going on, we're just trying to make it through. With school starting up and all the adjustments, that's taking place because of that, which is a lot. A lot of us are maybe just in survival mode. And yet Paul calls us as Christians and as a church, not to just survive, but to thrive. And he shows us how to do that here in this passage. So let's look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12 through 24. This is God's word. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now, he will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and for and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do give thanks for your word that has been so timely over these past eight months, God. Uh, you ordained this before the creation of the world for our good, and we are so thankful, Lord. We pray, God, continue to teach us from this book, Lord, that we might not just be surviving, but thriving for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around during this series in 1 Corinthians, uh, you may remember that Corinth was a very messed up church. Uh, Maybe the most messed up church in the whole world at that time. Probably a very frustrating church to shepherd and to minister to as the apostle Paul did. But the apostle Paul loved the messy church and so did God. And so Paul chooses carefully his final exhortations and encouragement and teaching to the church. And they're beneficial for us today because we too are a messy church. We too don't have it all together. That's right. Amen. We are a messy church. And we too need to know what it means, not just to survive as a church, but to thrive as a church. And so there are three exhortations that I want to give you from this passage as we end this letter to the Corinthians. And the first exhortation I want to spend most of my time on because I think it is a, it is a, it is a message that you probably will not hear anywhere else than in the church. And the first exhortation is this, to battle manly. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. And I love this. But it was not at all his will to come to you now. He will come when he has opportunity. If you remember from earlier in first Corinthians, Apollos was another gospel preacher, just like the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul approved of his teaching, endorsed his teaching. That's why he wants to send them back to the Corinthians to minister to them, to shepherd them. And evidently, previously he approached Apollos about going back to Corinth, but it was not Apollos's desire to go, nor was it the will of God. It was not his providence that Apollos would go back to Corinth. And I think the reason why Apollos did not go back there. The reason why it was not God's will for Apollos to go back is because it was time for the Corinthians to grow up a little bit. They were so dependent on famous preachers and teachers traveling through that it was time for them to take the wheel a little bit, to lead the church, to develop leadership, to mature and to blaze a trail of faithfulness together. And so Paul goes on in verse 13 he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Corinth had flattened gender distinctives. If you remember, Pastor Jonathan preached a few weeks back about head coverings, which is always a fun passage to preach on. But he he did such a great job of showing us how what Paul was exhorting them to was to keep their gender distinctives, that, that, that women did not need to become like men and that men didn't need to become like women, but be the gender that God has created you to be because they were flattening the gender distinctives. Furthermore, a few weeks ago, as we talked about tongues and prophecies and things like that, uh, Paul also addresses the roles of men and women in the church. And, and what we see in scripture is that God makes, makes mankind male and female, and both of them are equal worth and equal value and precious to God, made in the image of God, but they have different roles, complementary roles in the church and in the family and in society. And when those work together, it displays the glory of God in greater wonder. For example, in Isaiah sixty-six thirteen, 13, God says this. He says, this is God speaking. He says, as a mother... Comforts her child, so will I comfort you. He says, A woman can display this better than a man. When my children scrape their knee, guess who they go running to? Mom! Why? Because mom is much better at comforting the children than I am. I'm kind of like, toughen up, kid, right? Or you shouldn't have been running without shoes on or stuff. But mom will hold and cry with them and nurture them. Not that dad shouldn't do that, but mom's major in this. Dad's minor in it. Mom's major in this. And so they display the glory of God in a way better than men do in this way. On the other side, Proverbs 3 says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And so God says, these are characteristics of men, uh, women do this as well, but they major in this, that, that displays the glory and the love of God through discipline. And so there are distinctives in our genders which are wonderful and glorious. And as we try to flatten the distinctions, what we're doing is we're actually robbing ourselves from seeing the full glory of who God is. And we see this in our culture, for sure. I mean, maybe you you know some of these things, but now we are being encouraged not to call people he or she, but to use a gender-neutral name like they. Um, Now people can choose whichever bathroom they want to go in, Uh, adding to the confusion that's going on, which makes me afraid for my own daughter, to be honest with you. And, And in addition to that, really you can choose if you want to be on the boys track team or the girls track team, depending on how you feel. And there are a lot of women that are saying, this isn't right. There's an advantage. You see, There is gender distinctions that are important and helpful in God glorifying, but we are tending to flatten those gender distinctions. Now, I want to be clear, we need to oppose sexism where it applies. If there is a woman doing the same job that a man will do, but she gets paid less, we need to fight against that. That is wrong. But gender distinctions are a beautiful and wonderful thing that we should celebrate and embody. And so here, Paul is focusing on the men of the church. And he's saying, listen, males, be men. And he starts by giving a bunch of of encouragement here. So let me just walk through verse 13 slowly. First, he says, be watchful. In other words, be awake, be vigilant. It's a warning against complacency, which leads to destruction. Think of it this way. Uh, Paul is using military language here in this verse, but think of it this way. It is, if you were on a post on on the outskirts of a city or, or a camp and there were potential raiding armies around you, or if there was spies, or if there was animals and your job was to keep awake, to be vigilant, to look for those that were seeking to attack and devour, not only you, but the people that you were put in charge of protecting. You would be awake, you would be vigilant. That's what this command is to do. Or to put it in common, day language. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but at three in the morning, you hear something clank downstairs and you grab your bat and you walk over to the stairs. You are vigilant. You are watching out. You're keeping watch. You are on high alert. The reality is we have an adversary constantly seeking to sow destruction. And he is waiting for you to be distracted by work or by play or by complacency to wage war. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be watchful. Your adversary, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, we talk a lot here about believing in God, which is good. We should talk about believing in God. But do you believe in the devil? I mean, do you really believe in the devil? Not just like this concept of a devil, but do you believe that the devil is at work in the world today, seeking to sow destruction in your life? Your enemy is not your wife. It is not your boss. It is not your kids. Your adversary is the devil, seeking to destroy your relationship, seeking to destroy your faith, seeking to destroy your joy. If you don't believe in the devil, the devil has you right where he wants you. And he's winning the war for your heart. Men, we are called to be watchful. Watchful over ourselves, our purity of heart, our doctrine, the way that we obey God's word, we have to watch over ourselves. We have to watch over our family. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on TV and internet. TV and internet is a great gift from God. But there is so much trash that's, that can be filtered into our home. And, and God's saying, be watchful for those things. Those things can be the scheme of Satan. not everything, I'm not but, but you have to be watchful on what comes into your household. And we have to be watchful over our church, over the doctrine of our church. If, if we stop teaching God's word, if we give up on the gospel of Jesus Christ, be watchful for those things. Contest those things. There's a battle for faithfulness, not only outside our door, but also in our house, in our church, and in our heart. And so Paul says, act like men, be watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to desire. Secondly, Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Again, if you can imagine a soldier standing watch, looking out, being vigilant, being watchful, looking for the intruders, there would be a temptation when an intruder comes to turn and run the other direction. But he's saying, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm on the word of God. Stand firm against false doctrine. Stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not compromise those things. And then he says, act like men. Literally be manly. Be courageous. Fighting for the faith is not easy. It takes courage. It takes courage to say no to sin that you so desperately want to say yes to. It takes courage to say yes to God when everyone else says no to him. This call to manhood echoes some of King David's final words to his son Solomon. I think we might have them up here on the screen, but it's 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And it says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth, be strong and show yourself a man. He says, I'm about to die, be strong and show yourself a man, which means David knew not only was he called to be a man, but he was also called to impart manhood to his sons. Now, what does it look like to be a man? David continues. He says, keep the charge of the Lord, your God. What is that charge? Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so here's the question, what makes a boy a man? Is it if he can shoot a deer from 200 yards away? Is it if he can shave? (laughs) Is it if he can do whatever he wants with girls? Certainly it is none of those things. According to 1 Kings chapter 2, what makes a boy a man is if they read the word of God, know the word of God, and obey the word of God. Manhood is a long obedience in the same direction of faithfulness to the word of God. First Corinthians 13, which we studied just a few weeks ago, that's the love chapter. What is hidden in there is so precious to us in this time. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We are called to put aside childishness, to be watchful, to stand firm. Now, being a man after God's own heart can be exhausting. As a matter of fact, if you are living as God has called you to be men, you will be tired. That shouldn't be your expectation, as you are continually pouring yourself out and serving and sacrificing others, it should make you tired. And so Paul ends verse 13 by saying, be strong. This can actually be a passive verb, which means be strengthened by the Lord. Now, here's the thing. If Paul stopped his calling to manhood here, we would probably just end up with a bunch of of jerks focusing on the minors and fighting with one another, right? I'm supposed to stand up, be vigilant, be on guard. And so fighting for every little thing, right? But Paul continues in verse 14. And it's so important that this verse 14 is not left out of what it means to be a man. He says, let all that you do be done in love. This is agape love, unconditional love. Paul says, Let all you do, not just some of what you do, but let all you do be done in love. Confront in love, discipline in love, object in love, protest in love, confront in love, serve in love, worship in love, work in love. All that you do, do with love. And so the mark of a man must be a mark of love. Because if you have watchfulness, if you stand firm in the faith, and if you are strong, but you have no love, Paul says, you're only a noisy gong. If you want to see what a man is, you don't have to look to John Wayne or Chuck Norris. Because the most manly man to ever walk the face of the earth is the Lord Jesus Christ, who showed great agape love. It was the Lord Jesus who wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. It was the Lord Jesus who welcomed little children. This is what a manly man looks like. It was the Lord Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples that were going to betray him. And it was the Lord Jesus who was faithful to the word of God, the plan of God, to endure the wrath of God upon the cross for our sins. He poured everything out for us. This is the call to manhood. And he did it to save us and to give us newness of life through his resurrection. There in Patrick was a pastor in St. Louis and a church planter, and he wrote a book called Church Planter, and he talks about the man, the message, and the mission. That's kind of the big part of it, but he starts this book on church planting with what he calls is an epidemic of manlessness, okay, and this is what he says. It's a little long, but I think it's pretty good, so let me read it to you. He says, we live in a world full of males who have prolonged their adolescence, they're neither boys nor men. They live suspended, as it were, between childhood and adulthood, between growing up and being grown-ups. Let's call this kind of male BAN, B-A-N, a hybrid of both boy and man. BAN is juvenile because there has been an entire niche created for him to live in the lusts of youth. The accompanying culture not only tolerates this behavior, but encourages it and endorses it. Consider magazines like Maxim or movies like Wedding Crashers. This kind of male is everywhere, including the church. Ban is a frightening reality in the church, but he is the best thing that ever happened to the video game and adult entertainment industry. Half of American males between ages of 18 to 34 play video games almost three hours a day. And the average video game buyer is 35 years old. Our society is overrun with males who aren't men. Assuming the responsibilities of husband and father make a boy into a man, but Ban doesn't like responsibility, so he extends his adolescence and sets his focus squarely and supremely on himself. And then he ends with this quote. He says, the lack of godly men in our world is now a cultural crisis. We are not going to solve the problem by ignoring Ban and hoping that he eventually grows up. We are not going to solve the problem by encouraging women to take up the slack. We might solve the problem by modeling biblical manhood and calling adult boys to forsake their youthful lusts and become the men that God is calling them to be in the context of the local church. Just because you are a male, just because you shave, doesn't make you a man. What we learn here is that what makes a male a man is if they are growing in obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus is our portrait of manhood, of obedience to God and to sacrificially laying down our lives to protect others and to love others and to care. For others, And so that's Paul's first exhortation. That's where I'm going to spend those. The, the second two. I'll be a little bit shorter. But his first exhortation for the church, not only to survive, but to thrive is for males to be men. And then he goes on to encourage all of us, including men, but everyone to honor intentionally. Verse 15. He says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, which is the region located just north of Corinth, like just across the river, and that they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So in a world filled uh, with families that are hard even to get to church, uh, this is a great reminder that it is an honorable thing to commit your family to the service of the church, to the service of the saints, And he says that you should honor them. Now with Stephanus' household, it seems that some of those people in the church grew up into leadership roles in the church, into elders and pastors and missionaries in the church because of the language that he uses in verse 16. He says, be subject, literally submit to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. That's terminology Paul uses for those that are involved in gospel ministry vocationally. Now here's the thing is that Paul says, be subject to them. And the literal word is the word submit to them. Now I know this word submit is a dirty word in 21st century America, because we think submit means being a doormat, means not standing up for anything, right? It means having no backbone, but that can't be true because back in First 13, Paul says, stand firm, right? Be watchful, and so Paul is calling us to be be firm to stand to stand to stand faithful but also he's calling us to submit to the authorities that God has put in our life. Now, what does submission mean? Well, submission doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean you don't say anything. It doesn't mean you don't raise objections. But when you do, you go and you raise those objections in a loving, caring, and compassionate way. And then as long as the leadership does not call you to do something opposing God's authority, you're called to submit to it. So I'll give you a good example that's going on right now. There's a gentleman in our congregation, I won't name who it is. Um, but he doesn't like the mask mandate. I don't think he even likes that we are seeking to submit to our governing authority and requiring masks inside the building. It's not something that he likes, but I will tell you, he is plugged in. Uh, he is connected to the church. He's helping to build stuff for the church. He is He is serving in the outdoor service. He is committed to serving the church, even when he disagrees maybe with where we have standed in submitting to the governor's authority. That's what submission looks like in the church, to communicate what you are thinking and feeling to your leadership, but also to submit to the leadership in the direction they call you to go as long as it is not oppositional to scripture. And so we see here, Paul continues in verse 17. And he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus." and Fortunatus, and Acacius, because they have made up for your absence. So these are probably the crew that brought the letter from Chloe's household. We read about it in chapter one of 1 Corinthians. There's a letter that comes from Chloe's household expressing concerns about the Corinthian church. Paul writes back a letter, which is 1 Corinthians, which we have been going through. And so that is who came. And he says in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit, as well as yours. Again, I think this is such a great picture of what the church is supposed to look like, that we are to be a blessing to one another, that we are to refresh one another's spirits. Just this morning, I was, uh, after the sermon, a little girl came up to me, and I'll try to cover up her name here, but she gave me this picture. You probably can't see it, but it's a picture of me, and uh, it says, your preaching touches my heart, Pastor Dan. And I'm like, what a refreshing thing. I'm so blessed here. So many people are so encouraging. It refreshes my soul. Refresh one another's soul as well. This is what God's people are supposed to do, not just to survive, but to thrive. He goes on, he says, giving recognition to such people. So acknowledge people saying, thank you for doing that. Way to go. Good job, okay? And so what does the church need? Not just for us to survive, but to thrive. For men to step up and be manly men in love. For us to honor one another intentionally and finally to love affectionately. Again, this isn't just for the women in the church, this is for the men in the church. And this is not only exhorted to us in this passage, but it's demonstrated as well. Verse 19, Paul says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, uh, they were helped plant the church in Corinth. Together with the churches in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, again, this might be a verse we would read over quickly, but one of the issues the Corinthian church had is that they thought they were it. They thought they were the church that all other churches should model themselves after. And I would say that probably occurs in every church in America as well, including Jacobswell Church. And this is a great reminder that the church is universal and the church loves the church universal. Verse 20 says, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the high school boys said, amen, right? <laughs> I've been waiting for this passage. We're supposed to kiss one another. Well, not so quick. So in that time, uh, there was actually, men would kiss men as a term of affection and women would kiss women. It wouldn't be across genders, but this was appropriate in their culture. This is how they showed affection to one another. And so Paul is commanding this to them. For us, it may be a fist bump. It may be a hug. I always love, I know when a hug's over because there's like a double pat, you know, the double pat's like I'm tapping time to stop hugging. But this is the way that we show affection to one another. And Paul is saying, listen, show affectionate love towards one another. This is appropriate for the people of God. I remember there was a guy who'd been coming to church here for several years and he said, I think this church made me be a hugger. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, growing up, we never hugged each other. I've never been used to hugging each other. I don't hug my family much. But then I came here and I started experiencing the love of God in Christ and the love of the saints. And I realized I just wanna start hugging people. Now you may not be a hugger, but here's the point is that God calls us to affectionately love one another. And that's why that fellowship time that we have in the middle of service is so precious and so valuable so that we can love one another. Now, Paul continues and he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Grace is, is we are grace dependent people. Uh, Grace for salvation, grace for growth in godliness, we breathe the air of grace. And so God is praying more grace upon them. And then he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. And so Paul uh, is, is, is wishing them, is issuing to them affectionate love in Christ. And I skipped a verse up here. Um, verse 21, let me go back. He says, says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And so what Paul's doing is he's taking the pen from the scribe who's been writing things down. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, Uh, which literally is anathema. And what he's saying is if there's someone in the church that doesn't love Jesus, put them out of the church. And then he follows the word anathema with the word maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. And so if you love Jesus, if you don't love Jesus and you call yourself a Christian and you're not following Jesus, put them out of the church. But if you love Jesus, you will cry, come Lord Jesus. Okay. We covered all the verses now. So let me end with this. It's funny because I told you about how important a conclusion is. And uh, in God's providence, it's been very crazy busy. And I've not been able to think of a conclusion. On the way here, I was praying, Lord, give me a conclusion. Um, and I'm not sure it's a very good one. But if you look on the front of your bulletin, uh, you will see our, our, our logo for 1 Corinthians. And underneath it, it says, love never fails. And so, you know, I'm sure there's messages that you missed in 1 Corinthians. Um, and I'm sure that you didn't remember everything I said. I don't remember everything I said. But this is the message of 1 Corinthians that we need to remember, that love never fails, and first and foremost, it is the love of God in Christ for us that never fails. No matter how much you have sinned, no matter how far you have strayed, God's love for you in Christ never fails. Christ keeps all whom has been appointed to him by the Father. God's love never fails. But furthermore, we are exhorted to love others. It is hard to do in this time. I just talked to two different people in the parking lot after the first service who are so frustrated with people, who want to give up on people. But God calls us to a higher standard. God calls us to love the unlovely because God loved us when we were unlovely. And so if you remember anything from 1 Corinthians, remember this, that the love of God in Christ never fails. And we are called to the mission of love to this world, both to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors, but even to our enemies. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you again so much for this letter to the Corinthians and what a blessing it has been to our hearts and to our souls to expose shortcomings in our lives and lead us to the truth and to freedom and to grace, Lord God. Lord, we do pray that you would help us, Lord, to to respond with bitterness and hatred, with love. It is impossible for us to do apart from you. And so God, fill us and nourish us with your spirit to love those around us who are hard for us to love, Lord. We need your help so desperately. Thank you for loving us and for loving us when we are hard to love. May we always live in light of your love under the shadow of your love and then turn that love outward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.